Before we enter into the study of the Word of God, let's, let's begin with a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your Word. We ask that you encourage us by it, and we ask that you give us eyes to see your ways, your truth, that it may be implanted in our souls and that we may be transformed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, and the setting here for this chapter is that God has rejected Saul as king over Israel. Saul has rebelled twice, and so God has now rejected him, and he has instructed Samuel to go anoint a new king from among the sons of Jesse, although God doesn't tell him which son it's going to be. But he's to anoint a king from the sons of Jesse who is a Bethlehemite, we are told at the beginning of the chapter, meaning he's from the town of Bethlehem. So Samuel makes his way south from Ramah to Bethlehem. You remember Ramah is Samuel's hometown, which is just kind of due west of Jericho. Gibeah is very close to Ramah. Samuel has to go south through Gibeah. Gibeah is not shown on the map here. He's got to go south through Gibeah down here to get to, to Bethlehem. And um, this, this, this map kind of shows a bigger distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a bit closer to Jerusalem than this map shows. But you see this kind of this region here, which is the tribe of Benjamin. You've got the Benjamin arrow in here. And so Gibeah which is where Saul's from, is from the tribe of Benjamin. The new king is from Bethlehem, which is in the region of Judah. So this is the, the route that, that Samuel takes in obedience to God. Samuel summons Jesse and his sons. Now we have two different passages in the scripture that describe how many sons Jesse has. One passage says that Jesse has eight sons, and another passage says that Jesse has seven sons. First Chronicles, two, First Chronicles 2 says that Jesse has seven sons with David as the youngest. And then our chapter, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, says that Jesse has eight sons with David as the youngest. David is the youngest in both. The only question is, is it eight total or seven total? The difference may be because one of these sons died prematurely at some point after 1 Samuel, and when, he, when, when it's recorded again in 1 Chronicles 2, that son has already died. That may be the difference, but here's the listing. You have the firstborn is Eliab, then you have Abinadab, Shimea, or also named Shammah or Shimea. We'll get one of those alternate names in our passage, Nathaniel or Nathaniel, Rad, uh, Radai, Azam, and then number seven is the one that we don't know his name because the name just wasn't given. This is, this is the one that apparently passed away. And then we have as number eight, David, the, the, the final one in the list. First Chronicles 2 also tells us that Jesse, in addition to the eight boys, had two daughters. The daughters' names were Zeruah and Abigail. The point is, this is not a small family. This is a large family, and 
David is the youngest of all of the children. Samuel is supposed to anoint one of Jesse's sons. So as you would in that culture, you start with the oldest. The oldest is given the highest rank, and the oldest appears, Abinadab, uh, excuse me, Eliab appears, who's the oldest, and Samuel is very impressed with Eliab. He looks very kingly, very stately, and so we pick up where we left off, or one verse before we left off last time, which is verse 6 of chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. It reads like this. When they entered, he, took, he looked at Eliab, this is Samuel looking at Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But as we saw last time, the Lord looks at the inside, not at the outside. Everybody else looks at the outside, the Lord looks at the inside. Keep reading in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This phrase here, man looks at the outward appearance, literally in the Hebrew, it's man looks according to the eyes. Man looks according to the eyes. The way we assess someone is what we can see. I mean, that's, that's obvious, right? Whatever we can perceive based on our limitations, which is our eyes, I mean, we hear, we listen to what the fellow says, we observe with our eyes what he does, how he carries himself, how he speaks. That's how we perceive. That's how we read someone, how we gauge someone. Because our ability to, to assess is limited to our ability to perceive. But of course, God's knowledge is eternal, and he perceives the inside, the innermost being of who we are. He perceives our hearts. God is interested in our hearts because that's what produces our behavior, our actions. Jeremiah put it this way, or it's recorded this way in Jeremiah 17, 10, when the Lord speaks and he says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. We're a product of our thoughts the, the proverb says it well, Proverbs 23, 23, 7, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. So here God, just by way of review, God is selecting a new king whose heart is after God's heart. Don't think of the heart the way is often presented in Christianity, right? Heart knowledge, head knowledge. I don't want none of that head knowledge. I need a heart knowledge. I need the I need it deep, deep, deep in, 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 in who I am. I, but the head knowledge, that brainy stuff, I don't want none of that. That's just totally unscriptural. I mean, the heart is where the mind functions. At least that's the way the heart, lev, levav, either, either word is, is, is used in the scripture. The heart is the seat of the emotions. It's the will. It's the mind. It's the whole package. It's the inner self. And so God selects a heart of a man that pursues God's heart, which is to say he selects a man whose will pursues his own will. And of course, the son of David, the greater son of David, will utter that powerful, eternally significant prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this, Father, but not my will, but thy will be done. You see how the greater son of David 
fits the pattern of David, but he fits it perfectly. He fits it eternally. Then we keep reading in verse 8 of chapter 16. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Verse 10, thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. It goes in rank. It goes in age. Oldest, then the, then the second oldest, then the third oldest. Next, next, next. Samuel says, nope, nope, nope. Another, bring another. Nope, 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 nope. Do you have any more? Do you have any others, Jesse? And Jesse answers the question in verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Finally, we are introduced to David. In, in the Hebrew, David is the way you pronounce David in the Hebrew. Now, his name is not mentioned here. His name will be specifically mentioned in a couple more verses, but just by way of anticipation of what's happening here and what we're going to see in a moment, David, the name means beloved. No one thought very highly of David, not even his own father, because his father's, the sense that we get here is his father's... Do you really want to see David? I mean, do you really want to see that one? That one's off tending the sheep. He's out in the field. I got the impressive ones right here. That's kind of the tone of what we're seeing here with Jesse. Jesse has this approach. I'm not saying he, he doesn't love his son David. It's just he's the youngest. He's the one who's out there with the sheep. David is a nobody, totally forgettable, totally unimportant and so what God does is he takes the one who is totally forgettable and totally unimportant in their eyes and he makes him, he makes the nobody a somebody. Because for everybody else, David's forgettable except for the one who it really matters. And so God takes their nobody and he makes him somebody. The name David is mentioned more often than any other individual in the entire Bible other than the son of David. The name David is mentioned almost 1,000 times. Not just any David, this David is mentioned almost 1,000 times in the Bible. And the only one who exceeds that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is more written in the Bible about David than any other character, any other individual, except the son of David, except Jesus Christ himself. I say again, the Lord takes their nobody and he makes him somebody. God will make David's name forever famous. And what is David doing when we are first introduced to him? The text says he is tending the sheep. He's tending his father's flock is what he's doing. And so you have this picture of a flock here that we see in kind of modern Bethlehem. They didn't have pictures. They didn't have, have cameras back then. So this is, you know, a picture of of, of at least uh, the lighting isn't great, but you see, the, you see the two sheep here and you see Bethlehem off here in the distance. The, the, 
duty of being a shepherd was kind of a, a dirty job because you lived out in the field. You lived out with the animals, and so you gave the responsibility of shepherding, you gave that to someone who was at the lowest on the, on the totem pole, you might say. Sheep are usually portrayed in the Bible as helpless, vulnerable, and very likely to stray away from the place of protection, from the place of security. And the shepherd is usually portrayed with beautiful and powerful imagery in the Scripture. Even God himself is often described as a shepherd. Here are some of the, the powerful images that the Bible gives of shepherds and shepherding. Number one, the shepherd knows his sheep and they know him. John chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus said to him, to the shepherd, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Number two, the shepherd tenderly cares for the weak sheep, the ones who can't care for themselves. Isaiah 40, verse 11, like a shepherd, he, the he here is the Lord, will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ooze, ewes. We live not far from, from a herd of sheep and, and about a month ago, there was a little baby sheep. I mean, this sheep was two weeks old or something. And she got, he or she got stuck behind a fence. And mama was outside the fence. And the little baby was there. And the baby was, was banging its head against the fence trying to get the mama. And they're both crying out to each other. And, and my wife and I were close by. And so I just went around and I picked up the little baby in my arms. And he was totally quiet totally quiet and peaceful, and I just took him around, and, and Mama was quiet watching me. She's, what's going on there? And so I, I kind of walked around the fence, and, and I put him down, and he just ran to Mama, and Mama was licking all over him, and I mean, it was, it was, it was a party for those two. It was this tender moment, and, and that's what you see in this language here with the Lord carrying a tender sheep, the young in his arms, because the shepherd tenderly cares for the weak. Number three, the shepherd guards his sheep in the darkness. You see that with that description of the angels in Luke 2, in the same, Luke 2 verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Number four, the shepherd gathers his sheep when they are scattered and vulnerable. Ezekiel 34, 12, as a shepherd cares for his herd, in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I, the, the referent there is the Lord, so I, the Lord, will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And finally, the shepherd is willing to give his own life for his sheep. First Samuel 17, verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from its, his mouth. This is a teenager, by the way. This is when David was a teenager tending to the flock. Verse 35, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from its mouth. So the, the lion, the bear, has the sheep in his mouth. 
and David, the teenage boy, gets in there and sticks his hand in the mouth to remove the sheep and engages in combat with the lion or the bear. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. This is a picture of the, the, the one who's totally forgettable, the one who's totally unimportant to the clan. This is what he does when no one knows about it. He does his work before the Lord intending the flock. John 10, verse 11, Jesus, the son of David, said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's a beautiful picture that the scripture portrays of the shepherd. A picture of sacrifice, a picture of love, a picture of protection, a picture of duty, a picture of responsibility. Many of God's servants in the scripture were shepherds. Abel, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, was a shepherd. Remember Abel, Abel whom Jesus described as righteous. I'm not saying that you have to be a shepherd to be righteous. I'm just saying that Abel was the first recorded shepherd in the scripture. Jacob, Genesis 30, was a shepherd. Jacob's wife, Rachel, was a shepherdess. Moses was a shepherd. The prophet Amos was a shepherd. In the ancient time, rulers liked to view themselves as shepherds over their people. So the, the, the well-known king of Mesopotamia, the, the ancient king of Mesopotamia, Hammurabi, where you have the code of Hammurabi, he described himself as a shepherd of his people. David will be a shepherd of the people of Israel a thousand times more than the pagan king Hammurabi or any of the other pagan kings. David's work as a shepherd of the sheep qualified him to be a shepherd of Israel. Look how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 78, verse 70. He, the he there is God, also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. Remember, Jacob and Israel, two names for the same person, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, also known as Israel. Verse 72, so he shepherded them, David shepherded Israel, according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. Again, we see the Hebrew word levav for heart, same word that is used in chapter 16, verse 7. God chose David because of his faithful levav, his faithful heart, because of his commitment to duty, because of his commitment to responsibility before the Lord. That applies to all of us, too, as parents, as grandparents, in whatever job, whatever place of employment we have. We have a duty before the Lord. Whether you realize it or not, God is watching everything that, we, that you do, that I do, and in that place of responsibility, God is observing our hearts and observing how we take our job seriously or not seriously. And so what he does is he considers that for the next promotion, for the next responsibility. David took his job before the Lord, a job that was merely a shepherd, so his family felt, but he took it very seriously because he was serving the Lord. And so now God takes 
this man from the fold of the sheep and puts, will put him in charge of the fold of Israel. Part, part of what made David so impressive is that he was humble. David recognized that he too was a sheep, that he too was in need of the shepherding of the Lord God himself. And so David wrote that beautiful hymn, or that it's a hymn and a psalm, but that psalm that we know so well, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the one who the Lord has selected to be the new king. This is the one who, ha who the Lord has identified as being a man after the Lord's own heart. And so at the end of verse 11 in chapter 16, Samuel says, we are not going to move a muscle until you bring that boy from the fold here among us. Literally, the words in verse 11 are, we will not sit down until he comes here. Keep reading in verse 12. So he, the he there is Jesse. So Jesse sent and brought Kim in. Jesse sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. The word ruddy is the word in Hebrew, admoni. And admoni means red. This is the word that is used of Esau when he came out of the womb. It's used to describe Esau's flesh, Esau's skin back in Genesis. There are a couple of ways to understand this Hebrew word translated ruddy in English. It can either mean he was fair-complected, so the sun made his skin red. You know, if, you're, if you've got really white skin, you go out in the sun, it only takes you about 30 minutes, I speak, from personal experience, and, you know, that skin's already starting to get kind of pink, and if you're out there for two hours, man, that is red as a lobster, or is that sweater right there? It is red. So the one way to take this, the ruddy is to mean his skin was fair-complected and the sun made it red, or another way is that he was red-headed, or both, right? I mean, redheads are, are, are typically fair-skinned. The point is, he had a characteristic that distinguished, distinguished him from the, the people in that region, from, from the Semitic people in that region, and even from the Semitic people of Israel. He is Semitic. It's just he's ruddy. Like Saul, David was handsome. And this is not why God chose him. God chose him because he was faithful to God. And David is part of the fulfillment of prophecy. David is from the tribe of Judah through which Messiah would come. You remember the prophecy that, that Jacob gave to his various sons back in Genesis 49.10 is the prophecy to Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, until Messiah comes. 
and to Kim shall be the obedience of the, obedience of the people. Those words there, scepter, ruler, staff, those are regal words. Those are words of a king. Those, those are the accordments of a king. The scepter, the staff, at least in this context, is describing words of royalty. And to Kim shall be the obedience, not just of Israel, but of all the peoples. And so this was the very first prophecy that it would be that the, that the seed of the woman, to take us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, I will put enmity between you and him, and he will bruise you on the, you will bruise him on the heel, and he will bruise you on the head. So we know from Genesis 3.15 that there's the seed of the woman, the Savior that was prophesied. Then we know that after it, it um, after, after the, the, the sequence of events progress, it makes its way through Noah because everybody else is destroyed in the flood other, other than Noah and Noah's descendants. Then it goes through Noah, then it makes its way through Abraham. Then it continues down through, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob prophesies that the seed of the woman will come through Judah. So we know that Messiah would come through Judah. We know that Saul, who's a descendant not of Judah, but a descendant of Benjamin, one of the other brothers. We know that Saul could not be the line, and so David fits this, the, the, the line of the prophecy from Genesis 49.10, but God could have chosen any who were in the line of Judah. There are many in the line of Judah. We saw on the map, Judah's huge. There are many people in Judah. Benjamin's a small tribe. Judah's a huge tribe. So God could have chosen any in the line of Judah, and it still would have fulfilled the prophecy. But God selects one in the line of Judah who was a man after his own heart, one whose will pursues the will of God. And this is why we have such a unique man in the man of David. Keep reading in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David, from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Anoint is the cow stem of the Hebrew verb masha, and masha means to smear or anoint. Right? When they anointed you without oil, wasn't it deep, deep? It's not just a couple of droplets of oil. You just kind of brush that off your hair. No, they take the horn. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, Samuel, God tells Samuel, get your horn of oil. So a, so a ram's horn filled with oil, and they pour it on you. I mean, it's just kind of running all over you. You're, you're dying to get a towel because it's just, it's just all over you. And that is what Samuel does here with David in the spirit. This, this is a ritual of identifying this person with a special task of God. And so what they would do is they would, they would anoint, smear with oil, priests, prophets, and kings. They're set apart for a spe special service to God. This will be the first of three anointings with oil, three smearings of David. First, he's anointed here. Second, he will be anointed king of Judah in 2 Samuel 2.4. Then he will be anointed king of Israel in 2 Samuel 5, 3, the first anointing that we're seeing here in chapter 16 reflected God's choice for David to be king. The second anointing in 2 Samuel 2, 4 will be Judah's recognition of God's choice of David. 
And then the third and final anointing in 2 Samuel 5.3 will be the entire nation's recognition of David as God's choice as king. Although the text does not tell us, I think it's fair to assume that Samuel tells David here the purpose of the anointing, that he would be king. It's not clear who else knows the specific purpose of the anointing, who else knows it in the audience. Some level of secrecy would have been helpful for young David because if Saul knows that he's anointed as king to be the next king, Saul's going to kill him. I mean, we know from the beginning of this chapter that Samuel says, look, if Saul knows that I, I'm going to go down and anoint a new king, Saul's going to kill me. This is how much Saul hates the will of God. Saul is disinterested in the will of God. Saul is interested in the will of Saul. And so Saul could care less that God has chosen a new king. If he were to find that out, he would look to kill the new king. So I suspect there is a limited knowledge of the purpose of the anointing, even though Samuel is doing it in front of all the brothers, in front of the family. They all see it. And so there's a question as to how much is known by the audience. But my sense is that there will be some secrecy as to the purpose of young David's anointing, especially because David is going to enter the court of Saul before this chapter is over. And so some level of confidentiality is important. Of course, a time would come when everybody would know about the anointing and everybody would know about David being king, but that time is not quite yet. So in verse 13, David's name is finally given. This is the first time where we see David in the text. His name is associated with God's power. His name is given in, in connection with this event where the Spirit of God came mightily, it says, upon him. God's Spirit came upon David in connection with his anointing to empower him for a special work of God. David will be a mighty man of God, a great warrior, a great king, a great leader. He will do incredible things for God, so incredible that we're still talking about them 7,000 7, miles away on the opposite side of the planet, 3,000 Years later, David does incredible things and God empowers him for this great service to God. Just a quick refresher on the indwelling of the Spirit. In Old Testament time, times, the Spirit indwelled the believer, specific believers, not all believers. And it was a temporary indwelling for a temporary task like the building of the tabernacle or the building of the Ark of the Covenant for Bezalel or for Joshua for leading the people into the land or many of the judges like Samson or Gideon. And sometimes this is referred to as the endowment of the Spirit. It's described as the endowment of the Spirit. The, the word endue or the, the, the verb endue means to empower or to give an ability. And so in Old Testament times, you had this temporary endowment of the Spirit, a temporary indwelling of the Spirit for a particular task, and you could lose the Spirit. If you engaged in sin, you could lose the Spirit. This is why David will later pray, take not thy Spirit from me after his great sin with Bathsheba. That's Old Testament. But then in New Testament times, for New Testament believers, church-age believers like us, 
It is a permanent indwelling of the Spirit, and there's a distinction. There's a distinction between the permanent indwelling of the Spirit and the temporary filling of the Spirit. The permanent indwelling of the Spirit is God permanently, God the Holy Spirit permanently indwells us, period. Permanently, forever. The temporary filling of the Spirit is based on our submission to God. When we sin, we are grieving the Spirit. When we sin, we are quenching the Spirit, and we are not in fellowship with God, and therefore it is temporary. When we confess our sin and we return to fellowship with God, then the filling of the Spirit is resumed. And so there's a distinction in terms of the dwelling, indwelling of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit in church age believers. The point is this. The power of the spiritual life is in the Spirit of God. We cannot do things for God without His Spirit. The same Spirit that indwelt the great David indwells us. Sadly, for many in Bible churches, we kind of diminish this. We kind of blow off the filling of the Holy Spirit because we know that, that we're not supposed to kind of... Um, we're not supposed to kind of manufacture emotions so that people know that we're filled with the Spirit. We're not supposed to get all juiced up so that, so that you know I'm filled with the Spirit. And so I kind of do a bunch of exciting things with my hands and I kind of make a bunch of noises and get all juiced up and lathered up so that you know I'm filled with the Spirit. I mean, that's ha that happens in many churches. And we know we're not supposed to do that. We know that that is not real. That's synthetic. That's artificial. Because the filling of the Spirit is not something that you feel. But sometimes in Bible churches, we go to the other extreme and we just kind of diminish this doctrine. We blow off the doctrine of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because we go to the opposite extreme and, and we almost forget that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God, assuming that we are walking in the fellowship, walking in the filling of the Spirit in fellowship with Him empowers us, empowers us in the same way that David himself was empowered. The indwelling of the Spirit is the source of power for us to do God's work. It said so clearly in, in, in Zechariah 4.6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. John 15, 5, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It doesn't mean you can't tie your shoes. It doesn't mean you can't brush your teeth or you can't go to the restaurant. It doesn't mean you can't do nothing, nothing. He means you can do nothing of eternal significance without him, without the filling, because after he left, he gave the filling of the Spirit to church-age believers. Without the filling of the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, and then walking in the power of the Spirit, we can do nothing of eternal or spiritual significance. And so the Spirit of God that indwells David, that empowers him to do these amazing things that we are going to see, this great service to God, beginning with next, the next chapter, chapter 17, where, he, where the little teenager slaughters the giant, the power of God is in the Spirit of God. It's not in you, it's not in me. And so this doctrine of the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit is very, very important to church-age believers. What we're seeing 
in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel is that God has selected a new king and he has rejected the current one. Look at verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Because of Saul's disobedience, God has now turned to judge Saul. God has removed his spirit from Saul. God is cutting Saul off at the knees because the empowerment that Saul otherwise had to be able to rule is gone. The filling of the Holy Spirit is gone. And so God sends an evil spirit to terrorize him, the text says. The, the, the term evil spirit sounds just as ominous in Hebrew as it sounds in English. In Hebrew, it is ruah ra, ruah ra, ruah spirit, ruah, the better way to pronounce it, ruah spirit, ra'ah, is judgment or calamity or destruction. And so you have this evil spirit that God sends, the word says, to terrorize, to terrorize Saul. The Hebrew for terrorize means to terrify or to frighten. This is the part of God that we don't like to talk about, right? I mean, this is the part of God that, that, that makes us uncomfortable and squeamish. We do not comprehend the awesomeness of God, the otherness of God. We do not comprehend His power or His sovereignty or His judgment. And in our foolishness, we fail to fear God. We approach God as if he were our equal, or we approach him as if he's some sort of kind of super being that is in the struggle with another powerful being, the devil. And yeah, God's going to win, but he's in a struggle, and in the end, he wins the struggle. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is in no struggle at all. I mean, when you read Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, there is no fight between God and the devil. None. It's just the devil's first cast into the abyss for a thousand years, and then he's cast in a lake of fire. Finished. Done. There's no struggle because the God of the Bible is in absolute control. He's in control of, of the humans, of the angels, of the friends, of the foes, of the elect, and of the fallen. He's in complete control. And he even uses demonic forces. God's sovereignty is so vast that it encompasses even the, de the, the demonic realm. Demons cannot do anything without divine authorization. Satan couldn't attack Job until God gave him permission in Job chapter 1. The demons in Mark 5, remember when God in the flesh, when Jesus casts out the demon in Mark 5, and before he casts them out, he says, what is your name? And the demon says, we are legion, for we are many. Jesus casts them out, and they ask permission to go into the pigs. They have to ask permission first from God to do anything, to go into the pigs just like Satan has to ask, had to ask permission first from God before he could go after Job in Job chapter 1. God controls even the, the, the demonic realm, and he uses demons 
not just allowing them. It's not that he's allowing this demon to terrorize Saul. It's that he's sending the demon to terrorize Saul. This is a God to be feared. This is a God who can use evil, wicked, demonic powers for his purposes, his plan, without compromising his holiness, without compromising his purity, his integrity, his righteousness. This is what we are seeing in the text here. He's sending the demon, the evil spirit, to do his bidding. And there are other examples of this in the Scripture. The last time we saw this was in Judges chapter 9, verse 23, when it says God sent a ruah, ruah an evil spirit, same language, same construction. In, in Judges chapter 9, verse, 20, verse 23, God sent an evil spirit against Abimelech. Remember, Abimelech, the son of Gideon, <clears throat> Abimelech, who engaged in great murder. And Abimelech, who, who, who created this kind of army with the men of Shechem. So God sends an evil spirit to create enmity, animosity between Abimelech and his men, between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Or God sends an evil spirit to do his bidding with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul? He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, God sent a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. The sovereignty of God means that he is in absolute control of every realm, even the realm of darkness and evil. The demon, in verse 14, is there to bring calamity and judgment upon Saul so that everyone will know that God has rejected Saul and that he has selected another. Keep reading in verse 15. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now come. Let our Lord now come, your servants who are before you. Let them seek. <clears throat> excuse me. Let them seek a man who is skillful, who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he may play the harp with his hand and you will be well. They're saying, look, you need some good music. You need some tunes, right? You need, you need some good music, and that music will calm you. It's true that music can have an effect on the psyche. It can have a calming effect. But the counsel that Saul is getting here from his advisors is horrible. It's terrible advice that they're giving him. The proper advice would have been, Cry out to God in repentance. Confess your sin. Who knows? Maybe God will relent. We know from the prior chapter that Samuel has said, God is not going to change his mind. You're done, Saul. But I think the reason God does, isn't going to change his mind is because Saul is not going to repent. God will not re relent because, God, because Saul will not repent. And even if God wasn't even if the, the, the statement in verse 15, in chapter 15, that God is not going to change his mind, even if that is based on an absolute God is not going to change his mind, which it is in chapter 15, 
that still doesn't excuse Saul for not repenting. God's normal mode of operation is when we repent, he relents. That's what normally happens. That doesn't mean that, that there's no consequences for sin. That just means that we are restored to fellowship. And so God's normal course of action is to relent when we repent. But in chapter 15, Samuel said, no way, no how. God is not going to change his mind. The advice from the council and from the advisors and from the servants of Saul should have been, even if God doesn't change his mind, like Samuel said he won't, you should still repent. You should still cry out for mercy from God, even though he said he won't change his mind. That should have been the counsel from these advisors. But instead, the counsel is, you just need to find yourself a little bit of feel good. You need a solve, right? Uh, some, some, some ointment to, to just cover up the problem. You need something to numb the pain as opposed to crying out to God in repentance and in submission. Look at verse 17 of chapter 16. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Saul agrees. Saul agrees with the recommendation. No repentance, just something to, to distract me. Something to distract me from the pain. I mean, this is the way of the world. This is what characterizes the world. It's all about numb the pain with this thing, with some music, with some sex, with some, with some money, with some entertainment, with some power, with some drugs, with, with whatever we can find, numb the pain. Here, the approach is music, but man's appetite for different ways to numb the pain, man's appetite is limitless. Keep reading in verse 18. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who was a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. God created a reputation for David, a reputation that preceded him, young David. David, who's barely on the scene, God created this reputation for David so that one of Saul's servants would be aware of it, would hear about it, and would know of it, and then would make a recommendation to Saul. The servant knew of David's many qualities, and so he lists these qualities. The quality about, about a warrior that's referenced here, that's either with respect to David's killing of the lion or the bear with his hands, or maybe, maybe he did it with, with some bone or, or a dagger or something. That's either that or it's an anticipation of how this man will be a mighty warrior of Israel. What's happening is God is moving events to put David in the king's court. He's moving events so that David will be exposed to the things of the court and will be exposed to the things that are associated with kings, king life. Saul says, this is a great idea. Bring him in. And we're going to see that next time. He says, bring him in. 
bring David in, and David is going to have a a great position in the court. Saul's going to love David. And what we're going to see as the chapter unfolds is that Saul's decline is starting, kind of intensifying, and David's ascent is starting. And where Saul is a man terrorized and in fear, David is the one who comes in and solves the problem. David is the one who who comes in and makes Saul feel better in the midst of his suffering. And we'll see more of that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you recorded it for us all these many years ago. We ask that you challenge us by it, that you implant it in our souls. We ask that you help us understand the significance of these things for our lives and not just a story in the Bible. We ask that you challenge us to live like a David in obedience to you. Help us pursue your heart, pursue your will, and not our own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.